Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. So Jesus was, last time we talked, we, we went over the part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew 5, uh, like 21 and 20 through 30-ish. Um, and then we talked about, did we get to divorce? I don't remember if we did or not. Does anybody remember? Did we get to divorce? It's, it's all a part of the same conversation. That Jesus is having, where he's having he's having a conversation with the law, with the Old Testament law, and specifically with points of uh, you know one of the hot buttons of his of his particular day culturally. Okay, so there was big arguments going on in Judaism of the day. But you know, before we go there, let's pray. Can we do that? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We recognize your presence. Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired these words to be written. We ask that you would open them to us, help us to see them clearly, help us to see Jesus clearly. Pray that the static of the world that we live in and the things we've been doing up until now would be cleared from our minds and our emotions. I pray, Lord, that the uh, that we would leave behind our preconceptions and be informed by your word, be informed by you, Holy Spirit, as you move in and through the word of God this morning. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to convict us, to awaken us, to bring things to the surface that need to come to the surface. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to speak to the deepest things in us, to rattle our cages, to break open our boxes and crush our paradigms. Holy Spirit, you do what you want to do. Pray that I would not get in your way, Lord you would say what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen.
So in this part of, of the sermon, okay, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to remind you, okay, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is where Matthew took a bunch of the things that Jesus preached multiple times and kind of put them all in one spot, gave them one setting. And that's not to say that Jesus didn't say these things while he was sitting on the mountain and preaching, the, and preaching you know, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He probably did. But this is also Matthew's uh, attempt at, at cataloging the primary things that Jesus had to say uh, in his teaching ministry as, as he moved through uh, Israel and spoke to the children of Israel, right? And so these are, these as Christians, we need to know this sermon inside and out. This is Christianity 101. This is kingdom culture. The ABCs of Christianity are here in this sermon. I said, well, now the ABCs of Christianity are in Paul. No, uh, I would completely disagree with that. Paul was commenting on the Sermon on the Mount. Paul was commenting on the teachings of Jesus. If we don't have the Sermon on the Mount, we can't read Paul correctly. Okay, uh, you have to understand the source material. It's like taking a class without a textbook. Okay, the textbook is the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. The class is the Apostle Paul. And he's lecturing based on Jesus' ministry and teaching. So this needs to be our foundation because this is Jesus. And there are strains of Christianity out there and people in Christianity, even well-respected people in Christianity, who would almost fully discount the Sermon on the Mount as a part of being a follower of Jesus. They would say, well, Jesus was just putting righteousness out of our reach so that we would know we needed a Savior. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't doing that. He was doing that. But that doesn't mean that the things that he said have no, have, are not important. It doesn't mean the things that Jesus said shouldn't be our aspirational values, shouldn't be the things that we are reaching for and being convicted by when, you know, when the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts. So this sermon is important, which is why we spent all this time on it. I know we've spent a lot of time on it. I don't think there's anything more worth our time than Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's my personal opinion. Primarily because most of you, my guess, my guess is that most of you in, in, your, in the history of your, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in the history of the teachings you've heard, you've probably heard a lot more Paul than you have Jesus. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Paul. Paul is great. I, I adore Paul. Uh, um, but Paul was teaching Jesus. And I know me growing up, I spent all my time on the epistles. And most of the preachers that I listened to spent all their time on the epistles. And or maybe the Old Testament. It was kind of like back and forth between Old Testament and epistles. And I got very little exposure to the gospel, to the gospels. They would have said they were preaching the gospel because they're preaching things like the Romans Road and that kind of thing. But I missed the gospels and until I began to really dig into the gospels themselves, I didn't get a, a clear enough picture of Jesus. That's, 
that was my experience. I don't know. How, what, would, what would you say? Would you agree with that? Is that true of you and your history in the church? Would you say more Paul than Gospels? Talking about the letters of Paul. Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Timothy. Yeah, I mean, I would say a little bit more than the gospel for me, but for me it's kind of been half and half. Half gospel, half... Well, then you were in a better place than I was at the beginning of this. But I know for a fact, I don't think I ever heard of a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount prior to college. People would mention it, sometimes they would quote it, but would they actually dig into it and spend time there and marinate in this stuff, this radically important center for Jesus' teaching? But what did Jesus tell us to do? Go into the world and make what? Okay. Make disciples of every creature. What is the next part? Right. Teaching them to obey all the commands that I've given you. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You might, you might as well just take teaching them to obey Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because those, these are all the commands that Jesus has given us. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm getting quizzical looks. Does that make sense? Make disciples. By the way, it doesn't say converts. Just FYI. Make disciples, and this is how you do that. You teach them to obey the commands I've given you, and what are the commands? These are the commands. This is the stuff. Well, I am fulfilling the Great Commission standing in this room right now. Fulfilling the Great Commission, believe it or not, it only begins with raised hands and, and repeated prayers, and sometimes doesn't begin there at all. I have a real problem with raised hands and repeated prayers. I just, they really bug me. I only do it if the Holy Spirit's like, but now, then, which he did on Sunday. He was, the Holy Spirit's like, I want you to make this kind of invitation. Usually, if I'm inviting people to become followers of Jesus, I will say something like, I want you to talk to Jesus now. I want you to use your own words. I want you to ask him to forgive you of your sins. But, but I'm going to leave the words to you. You know better what your relationship with Jesus was, if it was anything. And just begin to have a conversation with Jesus. And I don't give them the words to say because I don't know where they're at. I can't give them words for where they're at. But I trust the Holy Spirit so that when they begin to say, okay, God, help, that the Holy Spirit can help can take them from where they're at and a few steps into where they need to be. Does, it, does that make sense to everyone? I have a real issue with telling people, now that you've said these words that I, for, that I fed you, you're, you are, you're good, you're not going to go to hell now, and you have a good relationship with God now. That, woo, that bugs me. Because I don't know that. I don't know that. And I know that I know that people have come in, said a prayer, had nothing real going on on the inside, and walked out of a church service thinking they're good with God when 
and, and, and nothing else ever change about their lives. I'm not okay with that. I don't feel like that's preaching the gospel at all. And besides, Jesus told me to make disciples. Does this make sense to everyone? Is there anybody in the room who has a real issue with what I'm saying right now? It's okay. You're allowed to tell me I'm completely wrong. That's fine. I can take it. No, I, no, I just want, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing on a key part of the culture that I assume most of you originate from. And so I don't want to just leave that out there and move on if there's things to be said about it. Right. Leading people in prayer. Like, I'm not saying it's like the best thing you can do. I'm not saying it's the worst thing you can do. Right. I definitely don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like, I don't think there's a problem that it bugs you. Like, if it bugs you, it bugs you. It really bugs me. I just, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Sure. Why yeah. does repeat, like, why does repeated prayers bug you when it goes like, when you say, okay, we're all going to pray this prayer together, the prayer of salvation? It's not so much the repeated prayer that bugs me because I would tell you all day to repeat prayers that aren't your own. What bugs me is if that is the beginning and end of a quote-unquote salvation experience. Okay? If we're in a church service, somebody feels emotional, moved, convicted, pick your word, and they respond, okay, in the service, but it ends there, that's not making a disciple. I'm not saying that's invalid. I'm not saying it's not important. It is both valid and important, but it is only step 0.01 of becoming a follower of Jesus. And if that's not made clear... That what, I'm, that what we're inviting people into is a lifestyle, is a relationship, is, an on, is, is something that's going to be... I'm inviting you into beginning something new that's going to change the rest of your life. If that's not made clear, that's something I have an issue with. And I've seen that happen. I've done that. But there came a time when I just said, I can't do that anymore. And so I may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think I have. But I refuse to give those kind of altar calls any longer. I want to invite people to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives at any given moment. But I'd rather say it's something like that. Like, if you're feeling like God is talking to you right now, if you're recognizing in this moment that your relationship with God either never existed or it used to exist and now it is broken, I want to invite you right now to begin a conversation with God. 
Well, see, the problem is, what do you mean they don't know how to do it? They have conversations with people every day. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's what I would like to say, is it's no different than a conversation you had with somebody two minutes ago. But I, I don't want to give them a, a, a set of religious things that they need to do, which have no meaning to them. You know, they're even saying words that they don't know what they mean. Well, and even more than that, okay, is, is I don't want them to think that saying these words means that you and God are good. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that we need to go further than that. There have been a lot of contexts, a lot of situations where that explanation doesn't happen, like at all. I wasn't saying it was wrong. I said it bugs me. Sure. It just bugs me. It bugs me because I've seen it done wrong so many times. I just, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something different. You know that the sinner's prayer is not in Scripture anywhere. No. Then how, then, how are we, then how are we as Christians, how have we conceived this idea of a sinner's prayer? We made it up. And Billy Graham was a big part of that, by the way. How, how so? Because now, now you got my train wheels rolling here. Okay, so, salvation, the way people got saved up until not very long ago, okay, um, it was a process, and then people would not even consider themselves saved until they were actually baptized most times. And that's what Baptists believe, right? Well, no, I'm not saying that baptism is required for salvation. I'm saying that they would have considered that probably their conversion experience. Yeah, like you, don't, you wouldn't have to converse in your mouth. You would just have to be dunked in water, right? Well, I mean, yeah, in order to be baptized, you would have to make confessions. Yeah. Okay, one at a time. Who, who was first? Go ahead. Right. So, like, the, I don't know. I guess when I got, like, as a kid, I've always been told that, like, you have to be baptized or, like, you'll go to hell. Basically. Right. Wow. There's a lot of churches that believe exactly that. Yeah, there's a lot of churches. There's a lot of churches that believe exactly that. Yeah. That you are not saved until you've been baptized in water. Which, I don't think so. No. What I would say is baptism is something Jesus commanded us to do. It is something he did as an example for us. He was baptized. He said he, said he wanted to be baptized in order to, how did he say it? Uh, 
fulfill all righteousness. That's what he told John the Baptist when John was like, how am I going to baptize you? You're the son of God. And Jesus is like, let's do this just to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus said. So, um, and then later on, we, we follow Jesus' example in baptism. And the Apostle Paul just assumes that everybody's going to be baptized because that was, a, that was a very important part of becoming a part of the body of Christ. Okay? But what we've done in our Western individualistic culture is we have made salvation a personal experience. We have made it something you decide to do and that can happen all inside of you and not and you don't have to participate in these other things okay and so baptism has kind of lost its meaning in a lot of ways because what baptism was from the beginning was being buried with christ okay and being surrounded by the body of christ the church and brought into new life as a member, as a part of the body. I was being baptized into Christ, into his body, and becoming a part of the church. Now we've had, uh, and so is it, is it like, if you don't get baptized, will you go to hell? No. No. Think about the thief on the cross, okay? Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus told him. Well, he was not baptized. Okay, so we can't really argue with that. That's Jesus, you know, sorry, Jesus, your, your theology was off. I mean, I know you were nailed to the cross, so it's understandable. No. Okay, and, but is baptism a regular part of what followers of Jesus should do? Yeah, absolutely it is, just like communion is a regular part of what followers of Jesus should do. Okay? These are things that Jesus instituted, which is why the Assemblies of God calls them the, the Institutes of the Church. Okay? So these are things that Jesus told us we needed to do as a part of following Him. But they're not, there's nothing, no work that is required to become a follower of Jesus, to have our sins forgiven, for us to be raised for us to be included in salvation. There's no work. There's no work of righteousness we have to do for that to happen. Okay? So that means there's no magical prayer. Okay? I know people that have begun their walk with Christ without ever saying any kind of prayer. They just inwardly, okay. And they began to talk to Jesus. And they began to move forward. But there was no like moment where they raised their hand and went down to the altar and had this kind of experience that we have normalized. But it's not, not, it's not absolutely necessary. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it's not, it's not absolutely necessary. Okay? Do we have to come to Jesus and say, I repent, I'm sorry, please forgive me? Yeah, we do. But guys, we have to do that every day. That's, that's just a part of being a follower of Jesus. Because when we recognize there's sin in our life, we come to him and say, wow, I screwed that up, and I'm going to really try not to do that again. That's every day. Right? I mean, am I wrong about this? Are you with me? That's an everyday thing. 
Martin Luther said, all life is repentance. And I agree. It's just a, just a regular, everyday part of a Christian's walk is to be a repentant person, a person who says, I am broken in so many ways, and that brokenness comes out uh, in my thoughts and in my actions and my words. Uh, so I recognize that, Jesus. I'm sorry. Please help me move beyond it, grow beyond it. And sometimes that first that first moment of recognizing your sin and wanting to repent takes place in a service when somebody says, raise your hand, repeat after me, etc. My issue with it is, I, I don't, I, I, I would say 85 to 90% of the time I've been in that kind of a service, it has been done completely wrong. So I just told you I did it on Sunday. I did a repeat after me prayer on Sunday. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying we really need to be careful that we don't tell people they've begun a relationship with Jesus just because they said these magic words. Does that make sense? Are we on the same page? I'm really glad. There's a, like, a lot of times like, I'm in their church and it'll be like, now this doesn't mean that you know, everything's going to be great. It doesn't mean your relationship with Jesus is going to be perfect. Like there's still going to be... Well, I'm not even talking about that. I mean, if that person, they can say whatever they want. If there's not something going on on the inside, what they just did was worthless. Well, I would also say that if there's not something going on the inside when you tell them just to talk to Jesus, no, I agree. I, I, I'm not saying that's not true. But I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus to help something to happen on the inside more than I do the words that I came up with to say for them to say. I'm handing that conversation off to a much higher authority than myself. Well, and I, think I, I also don't know I where don't, they're at. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, Mike. I really don't. But I also think that, like, we, we can depend on the Holy Spirit and be like, yeah, Holy Spirit, like, I know that you can speak to them and you can, like, you can do what you got to do um, with them and their hearts because you know where they're at and I don't. But I also just feel like, at least from personal experiences, like, before I came, became a Christian, if someone would have done that to me, I would have been, like, left just, like, I, I've never prayed before. Like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to listen to the Holy Spirit if I don't even really know if I believe in them? You know what I'm saying? And so I guess it's just like, um, uh, like the Holy, so I feel like if I was a pastor, you know, and I I, I would probably do it both ways. Like there's going to be times where, because I really like the altar calls where they like call out different groups of people, like at different stages. Like, so if you're someone that like needs to recommit, like you had a relationship with Jesus and you need to recommit, it's like, okay, you can pray your prayer because you know how to pray. But I think when it comes like to some, like, someone who's just now like they've never like thought of God or anything like that like okay I now want to start a relationship with Jesus and it's like okay Holy Spirit I know you could probably speak to them but like from my experience like I would have been lost and confused if I didn't have someone like help me and lead me through a prayer and so I feel like if I was like that pastor at the time like all you people that have had a relationship with Jesus before you do what you got to do like you know how to pray you know reconnect with Jesus and listen to him 
Um, but to like new believers or someone like that, I'd like, you know, I'd like Holy Spirit. Um, I know they might not be able to hear you the best because that's not something that they're used to. You know, use me. You know, give me words, and not just like, Lord, uh, I like, I for like forgive me of my sin and all that. Like legit, and that's why I like sometimes when I hear those prayers and they're not all the same. You right. know, and it's not it's not just the basic, um, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Um, I give my heart to you. Come inside of me, and I will. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I really like when I hear like the deeper side of stuff. Which is also like maybe they don't get the deeper side of stuff, but I also just feel like I trust the Holy Spirit to speak words through me that they would understand more. more I guess not more than I would trust Him to speak to them, but more than I would trust them to be able to like hear Him because they they don't they're just now figuring out who Jesus is and deciding that that's what they want. You know. Well, like I said, if the Holy Spirit prompts me to do so, then I do that, but not that's not. What, that happens a lot less than not. Yeah. And I think most people that are experiencing something that they don't even know what it is, and I don't leave them completely in the cold. I talk to them you know, a little bit about the kinds of things they should talk to God about. Yeah. But I don't give them a word-for-word recitation uh, because for me that would get in the way of being honest with God. So I will say things like, talk, it's okay. If you don't know what to say to God, that's fine. Just be, just be as honest as you can with him right now and just tell him, this is what I'm feeling. I, if you don't know what to say to him, tell him, I don't know what to say to you, but begin a conversation. Because I would much rather they, I, I would much rather they begin that way in a place of humility and conversation with God than in a place of liturgy and a conversation with what's going on in my head around what should be happening in their heart. So I totally get it. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying we should never, ever do that. I'm saying the culture that I grew up in, and maybe it's radically different now. I don't know. Maybe it is. But it's not that long ago that I was a part of this culture. So uh, there was a whole lot of say these things, you're good with God now, let's move on, and no follow-up, and no, uh, you know, and we could say, and we would write down on a piece of paper that 50 people got saved, because that's how many people raised their hands or filled out a card. And I, have, I just take issue with that. I'm fine if you want to say 50 people responded to the altar call. Okay, that's fine. But... What really happened there? And yeah. we, we don't know. I just like really enjoy how they do it here when they like do their altar calls. Because they'll do like a repeated prayer, like pray after me. And they're not just going to ask those specific people to do it. They're like, how about like everybody in the house? Like everybody right. in the congregation. Well, no. And, and, yeah. then, and then afterwards they're like, like, if you want to know more, if like you're being serious about this, yeah. come up and we'll pray. First Assembly is very good about that. Well, and they awesome. always have been. Yeah. Always have been. How they usually, how I've seen them do it here everyone bow their heads and then those people that want to accept it raise their hands and then they say everyone we're going to pray this prayer right yeah well, I think I think we've gotten derailed I'm kind of like in the middle here because like I see I see how I see what you're saying and I agree with it but then I also see what everyone else is saying and I agree with it so I'm kind of in the middle here 
I mean, I don't think there's. But I know the Bible too, says Luke one. So I don't think there's anything to disagree with. I think they're both like very useful. It just, like you obviously you should do it the best to your ability, the best to the Holy Spirit's ability. Like neither one of them are wrong. They're right. both very useful and very helpful. My point to begin with was, if you're not inviting them into a place of discipleship, you're not doing you're not doing what the Great Commission calls us to right. do. They, I can't disciple them unless they have a conversation with me. And I always invite them to do that. Right. I mean, if I see somebody in the audience... No, of course. And, and if I see somebody... If I see who that person was, I'm going to go talk to them. Or, and I ask the other, the elders of our church to be watching as well, to, you know, to go and talk to them so that we can begin that conversation. Yeah. It's not all on them. Yeah, I think both are great as long as there's follow-up. That's why I think growth track is such a good thing here. Because it's like, if you, because it's like, hey, if you accepted Jesus, um, let, like you said, let, a, let one of our deacons, our elders, or our Welcome Center people know, and they can give you information about our growth track or something like right. that. Right, yeah. The only thing that I have an issue with is the idea that you that that I can I can just say this set of words and now I'm good. Right. That's my issue. Cuz that's not real. That's not real. If there's not actual repentance going on, and the only one that can that knows that is you and Jesus. I don't know that. But if there's not actual repentance going on, there nothing has changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I try and what I just try and reach for the most authentic moment we can possibly have. And that's why I have an issue with me force feeding someone a prayer right. because that doesn't feel authentic to me. Does that make sense? That's what I'm trying to say. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, with if you need some help, here's, here's a good prayer to pray. I would tell people all day long to pray other people's prayers. I have told you that multiple times. My issue is if there's nothing real going on inside, then nothing happened. And so I want to create an environment where that's the conversation we're having. All Christians have done it for the last 2,000 years, except for like maybe the last 100 years, people have started throwing away those, those ancient prayers. And that's, I think that's a waste. I think it's not good. But that's, but that's another conversation we can have. So let's, let's get to Matthew because we're, we're, we spent a lot of time on this. Um, I'm just trying to remember where we left off. 
Which one? 34. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about you should not commit murder and you should not commit adultery. And then Jesus deals with divorce. So what's going on? Jesus is dealing with some of the hot-button issues of his time. Jesus did not shy away from the stuff people talked about. Jesus gets asked the question um, uh, in a different setting than this about divorce because divorce was a big issue then as it is now, right? Um, and Jesus says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of Adultery makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, that's like, that's hardcore, y'all. You look at this, at this issue, okay, and that is definitely <laughs> contrary to our own cultural values around marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus goes, uh, Jesus goes into more detail at other places when he's talking about how marriage works, what marriage is, and why divorce is a problem for God. Okay, but the way the culture surrounding this question, when, or this conversation that Jesus has, when he talks about divorce, is he lived in a culture where divorce was happening all the time and for almost any reason. And when it would happen, they would say, well, it's okay, Moses told me, whoever sends my wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So they would literally were allowed by the rabbis of the time to divorce your wife for burning your dinner. Okay, not kidding. Right? Also wrapped up in this, in, in what Jesus is saying here, is a particular view of women. Okay? Because what was going on at Jesus' time, women were property, they weren't humans. They were property of the men. And what would happen when a woman got, when a woman was divorced, it was always the woman's fault, culturally. The man was looked at as, oh, that poor guy. Right? But the woman was looked at as damaged goods. She probably wouldn't be able to find another husband. She would probably end up with nothing. She might have to move back in with her family. Often they would end up in prostitution, etc., because once you've been married and divorced, nobody would want to marry you. And women did not have an ability to make their own money in Jesus' culture. So when Jesus says, this is a huge issue, that people are just throwing marriage away as if it means nothing, this promise that you've made to this other person, and not only that, but women get crushed under the weight of our culture when they get thrown aside by men who don't care about them. This is not okay. And he says, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of, un of unchastity, it says here, but the, the idea is she's slept with someone else, makes her, forces her to commit adultery. That's crazy. He said, this is not a small thing. Divorce is destructive and should not be done for just any reason. He makes 
he makes this kind of, you know, this one caveat. If she's already cheating on you, then you're not forcing her to commit adultery because she was already committing adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, don't read into this, okay? Because Jesus is not talking about a woman who was forcefully pushed out by her husband and then some other man comes along and says, come and be my wife. He's not saying, that woman right there is now an adulteress, right? His point was, if you're married and you're walking down the street and you see another married couple and you're like, hubba, 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 right? And you divorce your wife and she divorces her husband and then the two of you get married, how can you think God's going to bless that union? That's still adultery just because it's legal doesn't make it okay. Does that make sense? What do you mean by that? What do I mean by what? Like, well, what do you mean by the, um, by what you just said when you were referring to, like, um, um, he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Like, what do you, what is, what do you mean by that? Like, Right. Jesus was not saying that divorced people should never get remarried. What Jesus was saying was getting divorced for the purpose of getting married to someone else. Okay? That's adultery. That's what he's talking about. Okay? He's not saying that two people that have been divorced, especially a woman who was thrown out of her home through no fault of her own, mm -hmm. should never find another husband. She was, he wasn't saying that. Does, this, does that make sense? That does make sense. Okay, that but what sense. was going on in, the, in his day and age was that people were just throwing their wives out because she's, you know, I want the, the new hotter model over there, which still happens quite a bit. Although right now in our culture, it's kind of flipping because now it's usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, but much more, much more often than it used to be, women are leaving their husbands rather than husbands leaving their wives. It obviously still happens both ways, uh, but now it's almost even, whereas before it was almost always the husband leaving, her wife, leaving his wife. Equality! <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not okay. Marriage is... A big deal. Okay? And this is the thing that we've got to pay attention to. We have to understand. There's something going on here that goes, that's beyond just a legal agreement that you're making with another human being. That there is a covenant that's being made before God. And that it's a serious thing. And it shouldn't just be abandoned for no reason at all. Does that mean that divorce should never happen? No, unfortunately not. We live in a sin-broken world. Divorce is going to happen. God's never excited about it, but there are times when that is the only thing left for a marriage. People would say, is divorce a sin? Yeah, it is. It's a sin. But 
all the reasons you got divorced are also a sin. Okay? So those fights that you had where you didn't forgive each other and you held on to grudges, etc., all of that was a sin. The way the things that you said about your husband or your wife where you harmed them, where you hurt them, where you were abusive towards them, if there was physical or emotional abuse going on, sin, 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 sin. And divorce is just another one, another sin. And sometimes when a marriage is completely toxic, the only thing that can happen is divorce because there is so much sin in between these two people that they just cannot stay together and heal. I would love and I believe that Jesus is the healer of marriage. But that means both husband and wife have to be willing to stay to be honest, and to be healed by Jesus. And that is often not something they're both willing to do. I have counseled many, 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 many couples. Some have walked through a process of healing, and some have said, I don't, I can't, I won't, and have walked away and ended up splitting up. That's life in this dark world that we live in where every single person is a sinner, me included. Right? There's no such thing as a a divorce-proof marriage. Not possible. My wife and I said from day one, we won't ever use that word. That's what we said. But I am not going to be stupid enough to stand here and say, that there is nothing that could ever happen or that there is no way that, that we could get to the point where we would end up getting divorced. I'm not stupid enough to say that. I don't see it happening. I really hope it never happens. We love each other very, very much. It's been 21 years if we've made it this far. I don't foresee that taking place. I don't know what I would do without Rachel. She's the love of my life. That's the truth. Okay. But I also know couples that were in exactly the position I'm in now, that through a whole lot of bad stuff taking place, through hardened hearts, through broken experiences, have within a, a year from this person is the love of my life, a year later is saying, I cannot stand to live with this person ever. And actually, recently I've had multiple marriages uh, of people that I am, you know, connected with that I know or that are a part of the church or whatever, where they've been married for 35, even 40 years, and all of a sudden, seemingly all of a sudden, they can't deal with each other anymore. Are you serious? Absolutely. It seems like if you make it to 40 years, you might as well just stick it out for the One would think. Okay, but there's... It's something you need to understand that there are, there are danger zones in people's lives and in marriages. Okay, one of those danger zones is the empty nest zone, which is where these couple, these few marriages were, where you go from being mom and dad into something else. And well, really though. Well, some people do, though. Some people are so invested in the life of their kids that they spend no time on their marriage, and they become strangers to one another. 
for 18 years while they were raising a kid, and then at the end of it, the kid's gone, and they're looking at a stranger in their bed saying, I don't know who you are, and I don't think I like you. easy. Because I just feel like, I don't know, personally I always thought that ha- having a child is something that just like brings me closer together. Now, say she was watching this later. Try it. Well, my wife and I have seen that happen to multiple marriages. Some of them have made it through that season. Some of them haven't. And so we decided a long time ago that we were going to prioritize our relationship with each other. You know, and when the kids are like, you're really going on another date. I'm like, listen, when you leave, she's going to still be here. So this has to work. So when I'm kissing my wife in the kitchen, my son catches me grabbing her butt, they're just going to have to deal. Sorry. I love my wife. It's just it's real life. Like, the kids will be like, stay out of the kitchen, guys. Ooh, Song of Solomon's spicy. Anyway, so Jesus is saying that marriage and divorce are a big deal and we shouldn't just throw them away frivolously. Yeah. Yeah. You see, God never really, in fact, God never forbids polygamy in scripture but it never works well go look at every polygamous marriage in scripture it's always bad always always bad and so no the covenant of marriage according to jesus in the other passage where he gets asked about this jesus is like jesus is like a man's gonna leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh he doesn't say the three four five six He says, this is how it's supposed to be. It was Adam and Eve, right? Okay. And it wasn't Adam and Eve and Louise and, you know, Patty and whatever. I don't even know. Just make up other names. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't all these other folks. Okay. Um, It was two become one flesh because that's how this is supposed to work. Right. And anytime that gets twisted, anytime that gets thrown out of joint, anytime that that gets messed with, bad things happen. Okay. It doesn't mean they aren't going to take place. I have a yes. So becoming one flesh. Yes. Does that happen at the point of marriage or sex? Yes. Okay. Okay. 
Now, is Jesus talking about is Jesus talking about the you know the what do you call it the consummation of marriage? Is he talking about sex there? Probably, but we don't know really. The idea I, is yeah, because I don't know if like one plus is like so if I get married and one plus is sex and I wait for some reason to have sex after marriage for like a year or something, are we not one plus until that moment or? First of all, what the heck, man? I mean, why would you do that? But second, I'm just saying, like if that, like hypothetically, I don't, I don't have any idea. I, I don't know that, and I'm not sure it matters, because there is, there is, the, you know, there is, there are old laws, human laws, not God's laws, about marriages that can be annulled because there hasn't been consummation, etc. So it's like, well, you weren't really married until that happened. And there were a lot of there were a lot of rituals. And this is gross, okay? Gross alert, okay? But there were rituals back in the day, okay? That a couple would go and consummate the marriage, and then they would literally bring the sheet out and show everybody it's been consummated. I'm not kidding. It's disgusting. Well, it was you know it's it's horrifying. Can you imagine as a as a newlywed couple like? Having to, okay, here's the sheets. Go away. Gross. I just don't want, anyway, I can't. I just can't. Oh. But that was a thing. It was a thing, all right? So, anyway. Do, do you, um, did you know, I didn't know this until recently, but now that we're on the subject, um, that that old song that, like, kids' churches in, like, the 90s used to sing called His Banner Over Me Is Love. Did you know that? It's from, yeah, I know. Yeah. Sex? Right, yes. Uh, he's brought me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. No, that one or the other one? Because there's several, several different songs from Song of Solomon. Remember that Song of Solomon is a metaphor for God's relationship with His church, as much as it is a romantic poem. It is both. You had a question. You remember what it was? Okay. All right. So Jesus was really putting, doubling down on marriage covenant is important. Okay. Now we'll move on to the next thing. Okay. Again, but this is in the same category, y'all, because all of this has to do with love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Are you with me? So verse 33, again, you have heard, the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I mean, we can now, but that's a different thing. But let your, <laughs> let your statements, uh, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and anything beyond these is of the evil one. Okay? So what is this about? Are we not allowed to say, I swear, I promise, I whatever? What is Jesus talking about? Okay, let me give you some insight into the culture. Because they would have endless arguments over the stuff, like... The stuff you swore by. Oh, if you swore by the temple, but not the gold of the temple, then it's not quite as important. Oh, I swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. 
Or I swear by the altar, but I didn't swear by the Holy of Holies. Like they, they had these stupid things. It was just like, you know, it was like, what level of, of vow are you making? And Jesus is like, no, that's all garbage. That is all an opportunity for you to lie. So stop lying. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if you mean it, then say so. And if you don't mean it, then say so. Just be honest with people. Don't play all these lawyery tricks. That's all, that's all just, he says, it's from the evil one. Anytime that you are leaving room for you to not stand up to your word, you are doing something that was inspired by Satan. And do you see how that's connected to the marriage vows? Okay. This is just a further conversation because here was a vow, an oath you're making to someone else. I will be with you for the rest of my life. I will love you for the rest of my life. And then you're like, yeah, but you burned my dinner. I'm out. Okay. And Jesus is like, no, that's not okay. You made a vow. And then he says, and it's the same thing when you're saying, yes, I will pay you that money. But then you're like, well, you know, I didn't say for, I didn't say exactly that I was for sure going to at this time give you the money back that I may or may not have borrowed from you at a time. No. All of that, all of that is worthless. Okay. Now let me get personal. Can I do that? Can I do that? Okay. In this age, as if I've ever not. Okay. In this day and age, we do this in a lot of different ways, right? Okay. We manipulate people. We play with people. We say things we don't mean to try and get people to do things we want them to do. It's not okay. We do things like ghosting people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw they sent me a message, but I just didn't mark it red, right? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about not being completely open and loving and honest with people. And how many times have you played a manipulative game to try and get somebody to do something you wanted them to do? Okay? How many times have you tried to work around, you know, work an angle over here so that, so that they do what you want them to do without you ever having to ask them to do it? I don't want to sound sexist, but I do see women do this more than men. It's probably just because you're a lot smarter than us and we can't think that way. Now, men tend to be direct. Now, that is probably a function of the patriarchy because we are allowed to be direct. I'm allowed to ask for what I want, and I don't have to feel bad about that. Most of the time, women are not. At least they don't feel like they are. And so they have to manufacture ways of asking for what they want without asking for what they want. This is one of the things, this is one of the primary issues of contention between my wife and I. Because I will say, I've literally done this, and don't do this. This is being a bad husband. I'm just going to say this to you. When I know that my wife wants me to do something, I'll say, I will do that for you, but you have to ask me to do it. For instance, 
if she wants me to take out the trash. She'll more likely say something like, it's trash night. Or, the trash is full. Is she asking me to do anything? No. Right. Absolutely. And if I'm feeling mischievous, I'll say, yeah, it is. I know what she wants. Why, if, but if I wanted her to take the trash, I would say, hey, babe, would you take the trash out for me? That's exactly how I would word it. I wouldn't say the trash is full. Or, hey, it's trash night. Don't forget. I wouldn't do that. I would be direct. Now, I admit, as a man, that I have cultural power that I don't recognize and that I probably abuse. And part of that cultural power is the ability to be direct. I get to ask for what I want because I'm a man. And women have been conditioned by our culture not to be direct about what they want. And women that are direct about what they want, they get called names. Not nice names. I hope that's not as true for your generation as it is for mine. But my guess is it probably is. But I feel like this is exactly what Jesus is getting at. Why not put our want on the table? Why not be direct? Why not just say it? Say it louder. Fear? Fear of what? Absolutely. Yeah. Fear of rejection. Because if you're honest enough to say, this is what I want, and they're honest enough to say, I, I don't, I'm not going to give that to you, that feels like a rejection, right? Yeah, absolutely. But we need to create... I think the church should be a culture where we can be honest with each other without being worried about what that's going to do to our relationship. I think marriage should be a culture where you can be honest with each other without worrying about what it's going to do to the relationship. I think that a wife should be able to say to a husband, I don't want to do that right now. Without him saying, come on. There's responsibility on both sides. There's responsibility on, on the side of the one who needs to clearly communicate their desires. And there's, a and there's a responsibility on the side of the one who needs to hear that desire from someone else and be gracious about saying yes when they can say yes or saying no when they need to say no. Does this make sense? What were you going to say? Yeah. <laughs> Do you agree with me? Don't you think it'd be healthier than the games that we play and the misinterpretations that we make? Don't you think it'd be easier? Right. 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 Well, what is... What does 1 John tell us about fear? 
perfect love casts out fear. That's what it says. Okay. And when I know you love me, and when you know I love you, you should be able to honestly communicate with each other. Right? Without fear of losing our relationship. <laughs> the games only hurt people. That's all they do. Here's another thing I want to talk about in the same vein, and that is uncommunicated expectation. Because it's the same thing, it's just backwards. When you have an expectation that you have never communicated to, that, to another person, and they don't meet that expectation, you still feel like they've let you down. Right? Did you, ever, did you ever tell them this is what you expected of them? No. It's an uncommunicated expectation. It's an assumed expectation. And they don't meet that expectation. And therefore, but, and then you feel betrayed and let down. Like they have done something bad to you. You follow me? I'm going to give you a for instance. Okay? As a pastor, I will gladly show up when people go to the hospital, I will go in and pray for them. I'll go in and spend, you know, and spend time when somebody dies and there's a funeral. I want to be there. I want to be present. Okay? And I had someone that was furious with me because she went in for surgery and I didn't show up. You want to know why I didn't show up? She never told me. She didn't tell me she was having surgery. Nobody ever told me. I didn't know. If I had known, I would have been there. I thought you meant she didn't tell you that she wanted no. to be there. No. All she had to do was tell me that she was having surgery and I would have been there. She didn't have to say, I want you to be there. I probably would have asked. I probably would have asked. If she had told me that she was having surgery, I probably would have said, when is it? Do you want me to come pray for you before you go in? And she would have said yes or no, and then we would have been fine. But nobody, she didn't tell me, and nobody else told me. And yet she was mad at me. She was mad at me. Now, whose fault was that? Right. But she didn't feel that way. She didn't. She didn't feel like it was her fault. She felt like I had let her down, that I had betrayed her, that I had not been there when she needed me. She didn't tell me. I didn't know. How could I have known? The hospital doesn't call us. Do you see how uncommunicated expectations, uncommunicated expectations equal you're going to get hurt? But there is a pressure in our culture and in our society about communicating expectations. People don't like expectations to be put on them. We know that. And so we don't like to communicate expectations. 
So we kind of beat around the bush. We kind of half suggest. We kind of, you know, hope that people get the message and then we're hurt when those expectations aren't met. Wouldn't it be better if we would just tell people what we want and then they can just say a flat yes or no and then it's over with? I want to encourage all of you, those of you that are first years after you're done with your first year and you get into a romantic relationship, to have a conversation up front about your expectations of one another. And as things progress in that relationship, you're going to need to have new conversations about what you expect from each other now, because now is not yesterday. And it has to be okay. It has to be okay. It has to be okay for you both to say, I would like this to happen, and for the other person to say, I'm not okay with that. Because a relationship is something that is created between two people. There's no, there's no cookie cutter thing that everybody gets to put on. Every marriage is different from every other marriage. Every boyfriend-girlfriend relationship is different from every other boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. You need to be able to decide between the two of you what your relationship looks like. And unless you have that conversation, that probably needs to happen in short spurts like, okay, we've got 30 minutes to talk about our relationship and then we're going to move on to something else because hours of that kind of conversation is not fun. And it gets difficult. I heard, so the, uh, my wife and I were watching The Amazing Race. Anybody ever watch The Amazing Race? Okay, we were watching The Amazing Race and there's this couple, a married couple, and they were, they were doing The Amazing Race together. And, and she says to her husband, this was my favorite thing ever, she says to her husband, Okay, babe, this just happened. Uh, I'm going to tell you something bad that happened, um, and you have 90 seconds to get over it because we need to keep moving. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Rachel looks at me and goes, we need to use that. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. You have 90 seconds to be mad at me, and then we're going to move on. I think that's great. And then the same day, I, she was really mad at me because I was in an intense conversation with a church member, and she was texting me and calling me whatever, and I was not answering my phone. And at the, the last text she sent me was, I'm pretty upset with you, and it's going to take me a lot more than 90 seconds to get over it. <laughs> but that kind of honesty, just base level honesty, is what's necessary in all of our relationships, friendship, romantic, etc. Be honest about what you want. And the first person you need to be honest with, the most important person you need to be honest with, is Jesus. And then yourself. Because until you tell Jesus what you want, he can't deal with it because you haven't admitted it. And what Jesus wants to do is change what you want. That's what Jesus wants to do. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is changing what I want which will then change what you do, FYI. But it's more important that we change what we want. Are you with me? 
So when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, this is what I'm hearing. Is that honesty is required in human relationships, even when it's difficult. Learning how to speak the truth in love is important. When you've been offended by someone, you should talk to them. I know, that's just terrible. But you should. Face to face. Mano y mano. Matthew 18 says it. We've said it before in here. When your brother has an ought against you, you need to go to them. Try and get it fixed. And it is okay for you to look at people. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I've had more than one conversation, multiple, multiple conversations, where one person or the other in a marriage is finally realizing after multiple years that they want something out of this marriage that they are not getting. Or that something's been happening inside of their marriage that they no longer like. Maybe they never liked it, but they put up with it for all this time, and now they're wanting that to change. And do you know the same conversation happens every single time? I, have just re- I just don't want this to happen anymore. So it usually takes some time to get them to be honest enough with me to actually say that. I'm tired of feeling this way. And I want it to change. That's when I look them in the eye and say, have you said this to your wife? Have you said this to your husband? You know what their answer is to me? No. Problem number one right there. That's the whole problem. Number one, number two, number three, number ten. They've got something they want or an expectation and it's never been communicated. It is the number one destroyer of relationships. Uncommunicated expectation. When you want something and you haven't talked to the person that you're in a relationship with about it, you're lying to them. That's what's happening. You are lying to them. You're doing it by not speaking rather than by speaking, which is a different kind of thing, but it's the same. Because you are introducing a false narrative into your relationship with that person, and you're going to destroy your relationship. Jesus says, don't let it happen. Manipulation is not love. Amen? All right. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Isn't Amen. That-